After experiencing the transformative power of a regular meditation practice, it's natural to feel inspired to share this gift and guide others on their own journey of discovery through meditation. Join Buddhist teacher David Nickturn and Duncan Trussell, comedian and creator of the Netflix animated series The Midnight Gospel, for a free online event on Tuesday, May 7th at 6 p.m. Eastern Time. They'll discuss the profound practices of mindfulness Dharma Moon's renowned Mindfulness Meditation Teacher Training Program. Get certified by Dharma Moon to teach meditation, lead group practice sessions, and work with individual students. Visit dharmamoon.com slash beherenow for more info and to reserve your spot for the free online event with David Nickturn and Duncan Trussell. everyone, it's Raghu, and I'm back with uh, Ramdev, Dale Borglim, who on this auspicious day, he just reminded me of Hanuman Jayanti, Hanuman's birth, which is being celebrated all over India and many, many other places, including America, where Hanuman is so well established at the Hanuman Temple in Taos, New Mexico. Welcome, Ramdev. Good to be with you, my dear friend, Raghu. Well, we haven't chatted in a long time, and I thought uh, even though uh, Ramdev has a podcast on Be Here Now Network, I just thought uh, it would be fun. But I didn't know. It was funny because we postponed it a couple of times, and here we are on, on this uh, Hanuman Jayanti. So very perfect, eh? Oh my God! What's going on in India? I just... Very sad. Yeah, it's really, really awful. My God. So yeah, some prayers for India. If you're doing anything for celebrating Hanuman Jayanti. So all right. Well, we've gone through a lot since you and I have actually talked on a podcast, or pretty much otherwise. It's been quite a while. Uh, so I am sure, because Ramdev uh, has an organization called Living Dying, Dying Center. Living Dying Project. Living Dying Project. Go to livingdying.org. <laughs> livingdying.org. That's, That's all it. you need to know. That's it. And uh, there's so many resources there and so on um, that uh, I'm sure that you're speaking with and counseling people. I mean, many people are coming to you as a result of not just being in a situation where they're going to pass soon or are very sick, but just the our common day-to-day dealing with fear and feeling of complete separation. So that's my first thing. What have you been talking about to people who, uh, and many of which um, sometimes get quite stuck in the uh, polarity of fear and uh, love. Well, uh, the organization is Living Slash Dying, and we're really about the slash, uh, the way that the fact we're all going <laughs> to die informs how we're living. It's the fact that you're, you're going to die and I'm going to die 
does that inspire us to be more alive? I mean, you mentioned we haven't talked for a while, but even if we had talked yesterday, we wouldn't really know that we we're both going to survive and be around to talk tomorrow or even at the end of this hour. So the fact that, that death exists, can that be something that really inspires us to be awake, to be generous, to be loving, to be compassionate, to be present? And at the same time, can we live in a way that prepares us to have a conscious death? Uh, when, when COVID really first became a pandemic and lockdown orders were coming and things like that, uh, the, the business of the Living Dying Project took off. Uh, we're, we're in a, we're, we're in a industry where the demographics are always very good, (laughs) never going out of style, but, but it was not that people were, were calling because they had COVID or they knew somebody who had COVID, but that the fact that, uh, COVID was rearing its ugly head uncovered latent fears that, that so many people had. Uh, things that they had been fairly successful in avoiding for a long time. And you even mentioned in in your initial remark there, the, the duality of fear and love. You probably remember when we were in India, Ramdas had this mm. little saying, faith, comma, no fear, period, fear, comma, no faith. And uh, as simple as it is, it's really a quite profound teaching, I think, that each time you act, are you acting from a place of fear? There's some tightness. I want people to like me. I've got to get it done. I have to be efficient. I can't fail. Or are you acting from a place of love where you're trusting your own true nature? You're trusting uh, God. And in fact, today being Hanuman Jayanti, Hanuman, of course, is the god of devotion through selfless service. So that our our talk today, are we doing Hanuman's work here? Is Hanuman flowing through us to bring comfort and wisdom to each other, to all the people who are listening or watching the podcast? So for me, a lot of the work I do is actually, as you suggested, about dealing with fear. And to me, there are two ways to do that. The one way, as Ramdas suggests, is when fear is too high, can we raise the amount of faith that we have? Can we have more faith that even when so many people are dying in India right now, or even when the political situation like a year ago was so horrible in America, even when these things are going on, uh, can that also be a time where we have faith that that uh, God is acting through the world in a certain way. And uh, sometimes, obviously, it's really, really difficult. You may also remember there was a time when we were in India when India and Pakistan were at war. There were planes flying over the uh, Delhi one night. We were sleeping on the roof of the... Evelyn, the, uh, what was the name of that hotel we stayed Palisades, in Delhi? Palisades. Yeah, yeah, the Palace Heights. The planes, mm-hmm. we, we didn't know if they were Pakistani planes that were going to mm-hmm. drop bombs on us or whether they were Indian planes there to protect us. But in that war, 
Bangladesh was formed. But during the war, tens of thousands of people were starving to death. And there we were in Delhi, like 100 miles away from the border. I don't know, maybe closer, maybe a bit further. But uh, Maharaji knew that all these people were starving to death. And we knew that he could move his finger and feed all those people. And he didn't do it. That the, that the, the, the collective karma was... I'm sorry. Okay. That the collective karma was unfolding there. So that right now we see horrible things and we do everything we can to work with it. But at the same time, uh, can we keep our faith? There's another way of dealing with fear, which is a more direct Buddhist way. Can you work with fear directly? What does it feel like to be afraid? And in my experience, personally, and people I work with, people are very seldom aware of their fear in the sense that when fear arises, it's almost always displaced. You're, you're afraid of something out there. I'm afraid I'm going to lose some money. I'm afraid this person's going to leave me. I'm afraid it's not going to be a nice day today because I want to go to the beach or whatever the heck it might be. Uh, maybe not the best example, <laughs> but uh, what does it actually feel like to be afraid? What does it feel like in your body? How often have you been awake during fear? Uh, and for a lot of people, that happens really, really seldom. Beyond that, almost all fear is rooted in fear of death. Uh, as the recovering mathematician that I am, my equation is all fear is fear of death. And fear of death equals lack of enlightenment. <laughs> so that place where you're afraid is exactly showing you, here's the place where your heart isn't completely open. Here's the place that you're not trusting that this is all God's will. You're, here's the place where you're, you're caught in not enoughness. There's some sense of inadequacy or uh, lost in conditioning, if you will. Mm. Yeah. Oh, listen, I have... I had this great thing that I found that fits perfectly with what you just said, I think. <laughs> uh, it's from uh, Karmapa 17th. Ah. And uh, you you met his predecessor, I believe. Uh, I did. He, he, I could even tell you a funny story. I was in a, it was really the beginning of the, the, the Tibetans coming to America. And the 16th Karmapa came to the Bay Area. And I went to get a, a teaching from him. And he said, okay, so all the people who uh, have had refuge before get on this side of the hall and all the people who haven't get on the other side of the hall because I have to give you refuge, those of you who haven't had it before I give you the teaching. So I move over. I'm right kind of on the boundary, but I'm clearly on the side of the people of had refuge before and he's going down and he's clipping off a piece of hair and doing some hocus pocus to other people. And he sees me on the other side, he starts laughing and he cuts a snip of my hair off, even though I've got it before. He thought I needed a double dose. I think, you know, that I needed an <laughs> extra, <laughs> extra blessing. So anyway, he, he was a remarkable man, the black hat ceremony. Okay. I he would, at... he would put this thing on his head and he yeah. would turn into a yeah, deity right deity. before your very eyes. Yeah, 
so I was at the same thing. Must it was eighty eighty one, I believe. It must have been in L.A. I, I mean, I was in L.A. because you were in the base, so it must have been around the same time. But here's okay. You can confirm to me. Here's what happened to me, which I've said uh, before and told the story on the podcast before. Uh, so I went to see him, and then you you ended up. You said he was coming around. We went by him and did the kata thing and so on. I don't remember the hair clippings, but the kata for sure. So you were in a line that would, you know, slowly go by him and each person right. would have a chance, right? So I got, I don't know, maybe six or eight people away from from him. And I had this thought that I've never forgotten. Oh, shit, Maharaji. <laughs> Whatever that thing was that, was self-referential for me about that being was the same thing when I came close to Karmapa. Whatever that beyond spaciousness, beyond anything kind of a thing. So what about you? Did you have anything (laughs) like that? I'm trying to get some. I mean, of course, Larry said, Larry Brilliant uh, and Girija had uh, Darshan and uh, had this wonderful thing go on where he said, where are you from? And they said, or who's your guru or something? And Neem Karoli Bama. Oh, Mahasiddha. And that's Bodhisattva. He called him Bodhisattva and a Mahasiddha. He had total respect uh, for him. Well, I had the great grace to be with a lot of those guys. Almost all of them were guys, Ananda, my two, of course, but mm. a lot of those Tibetan guys. And certainly the Karmapa to me was on the top of the. Mm. There's something about his vibe that was vast and yeah. uh, just pure love in a way that Maharaji's was. Kind of hard to compare, but Not compa- he was. Yeah, there's that deep thing that's the same. And there's only one thing going on that's behind all of it. And in these transparent beings, it's a little bit more detectable easily. Yeah, he was remarkable. But anyway, you're going to okay, read. Yeah, I'm going to read this thing. We're on a tangent. So he's so he has a he has a reincarnated being. For those of people who aren't listening, so that in the Tibetan lineage, somebody dies, they wait a little bit, they do some divination. And they dreams. determine here, here's here's somebody else who he's the next incarnation of that being, and then they train this guy from a tiny age to be this this uh, great but, meditation master, philosopher, everything. Yeah, but they actually uh, go to see the child with uh, some of the artifacts of the pre- previous incarnation, mm-hmm. and they mix it up, and they say, "Well, here's a." a few rattled dorjes or whatever, and uh, which one is yours? And they pick the right ones. I mean, that's part of what goes on. So, Karmapa, and I uh, fortunately did uh, meet uh, the 17th Karmapa, actually, in a very informal setting in a, in a hotel in Washington when he was there, when His Holiness was doing Kala Chakra. Uh, and he, it seemed to me, whatever happens from one body or whatever you call it, I mean, it's called so many things, seemed to be there. It was uncanny, uncanny. Oh. So he said, it's not enough to know that living beings exist around us, the Karmapa counseled. 
we must train in taking them to be more precious than ourselves. From beginningless time, others and ourselves have existed. We have moved down through time together. Since we train in bodhicitta, awakened mind, through relating to others, we should consider them dearer than ourselves. And these myriad connections can be either negative or positive. Whether they are one or the other depends on the way we relate to them. We can create positive relationships not just for temporary gains such as food or clothing, but for expressing genuine love and compassion. If we can do this, an excellent connection is created and our bodhicitta will grow, awakened mind to compassion. This seems like a rather tall order now, doesn't it? We well, should consider it, them dearer than ourselves. Oh, wow. So I would like to disagree with the Karmapa. Oh, my God. Did, have you, you did this last time. I don't know who it was, but go ahead. I did? Disagree. I don't think you so. You can't disagree with the Karmapa. <laughs> You'll go to hell. <laughs> Where is hell? I anyway, know. I mean, I fundamentally agree with him. But at the same time, in terms of Western psychology, mm. Many of the people I work with are racked with feelings of inadequacy mm. and shame and guilt. And to come uh, to have some client come in the door and say, hey, everybody's dearer than you are. Uh, <laughs> let's get on the, on the track here. Let's get on the program. It's not going to work. So that yeah. what he's saying is completely true, assuming that you are psychologically healthy enough. Yeah. Yeah. That, you, that you have a, a, a strong enough ego structure to begin to let go of identification with the ego structure. One friend of mine said you have to become somebody before you can yeah. become nobody. He's talking about becoming nobody. And at the end of, end of the road, that's great. That's great becoming nobody. But, uh, I mean, even a long time ago, I was at a, a Tibetan empowerment. I forget what it was it was a small one here in the Bay Area, and the Lama came out and he said, "Okay, everybody needs to open your heart to do this practice. So everybody think about your mother." And they said, "Oh, I forgot. This is America. <laughs> Thinking about your mother doesn't mean that your heart's going to open. You might not like your mother, you know. Mm -hmm. And in a way, that's kind of funny, but in a way, it's profoundly sad, yeah. right? Yeah. So what what uh, the Kamapa is saying there is true." If you've done the foundation work to get to the point of being healthy enough to let go of identification with separateness and beginning to identify instead with one's true nature. But for a lot of people, in fact, let me start that sentence over. A lot of people have gotten in a lot of trouble by trying to do that prematurely, mixing up letting go when there's still such a neurotic structure in place that the whole thing gets really uh, very complicated and painful. Mm. So, uh, you know, I mean, there are some of these Tibetan lamas who have a really profound understanding of Western psychology and some not so much. And I'm not saying, 
I mean, I don't know who's, who he, he was saying that to, if that was some prescription for everybody, like Maharaji would say something. And then two days later, he'd say the opposite thing to, to somebody, somebody else. else yeah. Or he'd say something to somebody and a month later, he'd say the opposite thing to that same person because that person had changed. So depending here on whether the Karmap is saying everybody should think of everybody as dearer than themselves, you know, I, I'd have, I'd, I'd say, well, hang on a minute here, buddy. I think you should be like <laughs> slow down a little bit. <laughs> uh, I, th I do believe it's a matter of who the audience was. Yeah, in yeah, this yeah, case, for sure. A very advanced being. Uh, but what you're saying is exactly true. And maybe he's underestimating the complete insanity of the Western <laughs> mind, especially. So, uh, but that leads us to... Uh, I mean, first of all, just going back to the central thing uh, that uh, he talks about and considering others more precious than yourself. It's, and, and really, to me, getting it into a little bit of more grounded terms, shall we say, it's thinking of others. It's just feeling compassionate when something's in front of you or a thought comes, whatever it is that you don't put yourself first. We can just start there. That That is attainable even for uh, our very neurotic Western natures. So I, I do think that that's there. And um, it's, uh, I think what you're saying is very true. And I do believe that there's a great value for even those of us who have done meditation for a long time or other practices, spiritual practices, in the dealing with the psychological stuff that we are carrying around. I mean, the habitual patterns, neurotic tendencies, and so on. So, um, and you, this is something that you're doing on a day-to-day -day basis. Is that not so? It is so. And I've, it, one of my main teaching topics is compassion and but i cannot tell you how many people have said i really feel i have a lot of compassion for other people i'm a nurse i'm a caregiver i'm a psycho psychotherapist whatever it might happen to be but i really have a hard time having compassion for myself and uh, once again until one has the psychological structure in place where you're 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 just uh, integrated enough i'm i'm really a firm believer in embodied mindfulness working with getting grounded and getting centered really being there before you start letting go into the spaciousness of the heart in buddhism the heart has three defining qualities the open heart one of them is spaciousness one is uh warmth one is connectedness and the spacious heart is difficult to bear if we if we don't feel adequate if we don't feel safe so that really we're going through the chakras here and the heart is the fourth chakra if you don't have the first chakra feeling safe and beyond fear which we talked about a few minutes ago and the second and third chakra is the lower belly the the, the hara becoming a warrior being a raga or a ramdev or whoever then without those first three chakras Staying in the heart is only going to be possible when the environment feels supportive enough. 
And if the environment doesn't feel supportive enough, then the heart opens and closes, open and closes. And you and I know people and we're people and maybe are people sometimes where the heart's wide open, really loving person, but then something happens out in the world, closes as tight as a, as a uh, safe, boom, it just shuts because there isn't that support from outside and we don't have it from underneath. Yeah, yeah. Uh, that's ex- an extremely important point for sure. And uh, and everybody who's listening, this isn't uh, you. We we can all live on many different planes. This is something Ramdas used to say all the all, you know all the time. You can live on more than one plane at the same time. We, we repeat that quite a bit. There's a psychological plane, and to deal with that, there's continuing the practice that allows for possibility through one pointedness of spaciousness. And there is the, uh, the beauty of the heart, and the heart opens using various practices. For us, it's been uh, particularly uh, around chant, and certainly that was brought back, which today, again, let's go back to Hanuman Jayanti, and all the right now the chalises are going on full time in Taos at the Hanuman Neem Karoli Baba Hanuman Temple there. So, uh, but this is a good time to ask you particularly about connection to Hanuman. What what is what is it after all these years and everything we've been through? What is that for you right now? The monkey. Well, as as Ramla said, it happens on so many planes. I uh, I have a Hanuman right on my altar that I built out of clay at a Hanuman Jayanti many years ago. Hmm. Uh, I really feel that the Living Dying Project is Hanuman's Living Dying Project. I'm just the face and the hands, but it's he's the he's he's the doer in a certain way. Uh, when I was running the Dying Center in Santa Fe many years ago, Hanuman actually showed up in my bedroom. I mean, I had out and out Hanuman darshan. He showed up in my bedroom made out of light. Uh, wait, wait, tell the story. I don't remember you ever telling me this story. Well, I, I don't. I don't tell it too often. I had been traveling a lot. The, the Dying Center was in full bloom and. Uh, I wasn't nearly as famous as Ramdas or Stephen Levine, so I was struggling a bit to fund the thing. And this one year, I, I taught 33 workshops all around the country just to keep the thing going. So I had been traveling, teaching. I came home. I was kind of exhausted. I was lying in my bed. I was taking a short nap, which I rarely did. And I woke up. And as I was lying in my bed, I was completely awake. I was not hallucinating. I was not on drugs. I was not asleep. I, I felt there's something funny in my room. What's, what is that feeling? And I looked over on the side of the room where I had my Zafu, my meditation cushion, where I would meditate. And sitting on it was Hanuman made out of red light, about two-thirds the size of an adult human being with a green loincloth on. And I looked at him, and he looked at me, he cocked his head, and the feeling was one of the most sweet, tender love combined with the strongest uh, force in the universe that could change things just like that, both of those together in this remarkable way. And 
I looked at him and because I was just in this very pure state of just having awakened, I was not particularly surprised that he was there, you know, and I said, oh, hi, Hanuman. And he just he just smiled at me and I looked at him and then I went back to sleep and I woke up and said, oh, my God, I had Hanuman's darshan. And then later in the day, I went over to see Ramdas. We had some business thing. He was living in Santa Fe at that point also. And I said, hey, Ramdas, Han was in my bedroom. And he freaked out. He said, Ramdev, you're so lucky. You know, and I said, well, it was, you know, I, I didn't. He was more impressed with it than I was. But the interesting part of the story was we were really broke. And in that same bedroom was my desk on which there were bills that I didn't know how we were going to pay. And the next day, a totally unexpected and unsolicited large donation showed up that mm. covered all the bills and more from a female physician that had been at a workshop I taught in Phoenix a month or two before. And I didn't, and she just put this check in the mail that had showed up right after Hanuman had been there. And I thought, you know, I mean, if Hanuman's in the bedroom, he's got to know that the bills are on the table, right? So why should I worry about that? And he took care of it. <laughs> <laughs> All right. uh, everybody listening, this is Dale Borglum, a.k.a. Ramdev, Ph.D. What is your quality, you know, out of Stanford statistics? What's the uh, official thing? That yeah, that's it. Ph.D. in biostatistics from Stanford back in the day. That's how I met Ramdas. I was going to Stanford, and whenever he'd come to Northern California, he'd stay at Joel Waldman's house across the street from me. He and Joel had been friends at Millbrook. Mm. <laughs> Can I tell you another Hanuman story? Please. So, But I just want everybody to know before you tell another story, this is not coming from Mr. Woohoo here. This is coming from a... <laughs> I'm a scientist. You know, yeah. I mean, I, these things don't happen too often. They've happened a few times. So uh, my mind was a complete shambles when I got to India to be with Maharaji. I had been in at Berkeley and Stanford for 10 years studying mathematics. I don't know if you can even imagine what that had, had done to my mind. So eventually, I heard that there were going to be some Goenka courses over in Bodh Gaya. And I came to Maharaji and said, Maharaji, can I go study with this Buddhist meditation teacher? And he was not very enthusiastic. He said, if you wish. <laughs> he didn't say, oh, yeah, great, Robert, have you go and study Buddhist meditation. It's kind of like, why, why would you want to leave me and go study with those people kind of thing? But he said, if you wish. So I went there. To, uh, I did two, two courses with Munindra and then two with Goenka, 40 straight days of nonstop meditation. And I was having these remarkable experiences. Goenka put me in a special room where my mind completely stopped. I thought maybe I was enlightened. <laughs> and when I got up from the special room and had to go through the meditation hall to get to the dining hall, somebody bumped into me as they were getting up. And I thought, do you know who you're bumping into? <laughs> and I realized that I was not enlightened at that point. But anyway, mm. uh, I was having these remarkable experiences. And I thought, that, okay, so then it was time to go back and be with Maharaji. There was a bunch of us there. Mohan was there. Radha was there. I forget. A bunch of satsang people were there. And in fact, a lot of people followed us. That's when the thing really started getting bigger around Maharaji. So Maharaji was at Dada's house. We go back to Dada's house and I'm thinking, this is going to be fantastic because I have all this love for Maharaji. But now, now my mind is clear. Now my mind is open. Whereas before, I felt like 
Maharaj is pouring all this nectar into me, but I was like a sieve and I was just like going right through it. I was like, I couldn't hold on to any of it because my mind was all like uh, a shambles. So I came to see Maharaji and everybody's like crying and laughing and they're happy to see Maharaji. And all I could see was name and form and shape and movement. It was like there was complete clarity, but I didn't feel the bhav. I didn't feel the love. And in retrospect, it was probably even a deeper kind of love. But I was really bothered that I didn't have the emotional, mm -hmm. juicy thing happening, mm -hmm. right? So I figured, well, it'll come back. And I came the next day, and the same thing happened. And I was praying, Maharaji, please let me feel you again. Mm -hmm. Three days, I couldn't feel anything. So I decided I was going to go to the Sangam, where the, they hold the Mela, where the Saraswati and the Ganga and the Yumna all come together. It was not the special auspicious time, but there it was, right? I don't know if you've been to the Sangam in Alapa, but it's way out in the middle of nowhere. And it, this was in, in January or February, so it was kind of bleak and it was, it was deserted. Uh, maybe there was like five people as far as you could see in either direction. And I had this rickshaw, I told the guy to wait, and I went to the river, and I, I dipped in the river, and as I came out, it had happened. My heart had burst open, and I could see each leaf on each tree just like glowing with consciousness. I thought, this is great, you know? So I hopped in the <laughs> sangam, I said, fourth church lane, let's go to Dada's house, and we're going along. And as we're going, I realized I don't have any, any prasad, I don't have anything to offer to Maharaji. And then beyond that, I realized that there was no bazaar. There was no place to buy anything between where we were and where we were going. And I'm thinking, what should I do about that? And just as I had that thought, there was a guy on the side of the road selling Indian calendar prints. You know, those garish, psychedelic-colored yeah, yeah, yeah. pictures that they have in the back of a shop. There's Lakshmi or there's Ganesh or something. I thought maybe there's a picture there. So I told the guy to stop. And he had dozens of pictures kind of nailed to this like ancient wall it was like a thousand year old wall with these like psychedelic prints on and they were all like just horrible and i mean you know not horrible but they were they didn't have the feeling to them mm. and just as i was about to give up on the ground was uh, the picture of hanuman embracing ram from the Ramayana, that 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 mm. moment, maybe the peak moment of the whole Ramayana, right, where Hanuman and Rama are embracing. It was a beautiful picture. So I got the picture, and I was so happy. And we get to uh, Dada's house, pay the rickshaw guy. He drives away. Now, usually, it was so crowded in those days. If you came late, you just had to sit in the back and pass your prasad up to the front. But for some reason, there was a pathway right up to the front, maybe some important person had just come, whatever. So I go up to the front and I've got this, this prasad from Maharaji, this, this picture, you know, it's like 18 inches by 12 inches big picture. Now, usually when I would give Maharaji some prasad, it, was, it would be like, I'm a poor devotee, I'm really uh, kind of a mess. Please take this. Please be kind to me. I'm unworthy. You're so great. I love you so much. But, You're repeating the uh, guru prayer in English, basically. But I was in just this pure space and I just kind of threw it at him. You know, I'm not like Adam, but like mm. at his feet. I just, here it is. Right. <laughs> and he, he picked it up and he started looking at it. 
and the whole bob and the whole feeling in the front started changing. It was so thick you could cut it with a knife. And he started crying. Hmm. And it was like the feeling was I was just projecting, but he was remembering that moment when Hanuman embraced Ram because he was Hanuman, right? And he looked at for a few minutes and then he he got up and he yelled something at Dada and he, he went kind of crashing out of the room, slammed the door and nobody saw him for an hour, right? And everybody was kind of, particularly all the people up in front were kind of like, what just happened? And then the next time we got to Brindavan, that picture was framed and was in the main Hanuman temple right behind Hanuman. It was there for many years. And usually when people gave Maharaji things, he didn't keep them, right? He just give them to somebody. But because they was given so purely, it wasn't even me doing it. I mean, once again, I'm making up my own story here, yeah, of course, that he, he was able to keep this thing and put it up there. And I was so happy about that. Mm. So there's that level of Hanuman where, you know, there's the temple and there's photographs and there's it's the Hanuman's, uh, Hanuman's Living Dying Project. But Mostly my relationship with Hanuman goes back to that Karmapa quote where I do try to feel that uh, I hold other people more dear, that, that by doing that, I become pure myself. The Dalai Lama has this quote, if you want others to be happy, practice compassion. If you want to be happy, practice compassion. So one of the, th I mean, people come to me and saying, I'm so overwhelmed. So many people are dying of COVID, people in India, people in America, all these things. And one of my prescriptions is practice for everybody else. Don't practice for yourself. Uh, sit down at night and feel comp uh, compassion. Do Tonglen practice or compassion practice, loving kindness practice for the people you know who are suffering. Yeah. Yeah, the uh, loving kindness, and and certainly we have to recommend to everybody Sharon Salzberg, who has been doing meta practice and teaching it for many many years in the West, and is a wonderful uh, proponent. And uh, you go to Sharon Salzberg. Well, she's got a podcast. Go to beherenownetwork dot com slash Sharon. There you go. Uh, but that is yeah. As far as I'm concerned, as well. Uh, I have also, and just in talking with people and people going through stuff, the the very first thing to do is absolutely start thinking of other, and not yourself. Just start at that basic level, because once that happens, you stop that story that uh, we all tell each other, or ourselves and each other, for that matter. And uh, one of the other talking about good things to do in terms of day-to-day, -day, how do we navigate using some of these wonderful techniques that have been provided to us over many years that we've been sharing. And certainly a, a breath is something that has, uh, uh, is extremely efficacious in terms of being able to change that perspective of being caught in believing our thoughts and whatever it might be. So I found this amazing thing, Ramdev, um, that it it's from the Tibetan Book of the Dev. I don't know if you have this. This is the uh, Evans Wentz with the John Woodruff intro. Have you ever seen that? 
Yeah, that's that was the first one that was here in the West long, long ago. Yeah, but I didn't know if, that this one had that John Woodruff uh, intro. Maybe which, that's a newer version yeah. of the old translation. Yeah, um, but the uh, there's so much in here uh, around the uh, the reality of what happens with breath and what they do with people that they're uh, moving out of this incarnation and going through the bardos. And um, there's, uh, um, I'm, I'm sure that you're giving people, I mean, Ram Dass's thing was go into the middle, the most simplistic way to be able to move through is to go into the center of your chest, take some several deep breaths, and move away from your perspective of your mind, ego, and then from the uh, creating through breath that spacious and presence in the middle of your chest, then you can have a perspective that is not uh, self-judgmental and all of the Mm -hmm. other kinds of things that we do presupposing uh, each situation in its darkest light. So, yeah, have you been working with people with breath particularly? I have. First of all, there's a a practice called Tonglen, which I'm sure you're familiar with. Payment Children teaches that I teach it, uh, which basically when you're working with suffering of another person, yourself, uh, a group, you, you breathe in the suffering with compassion into your heart and you breathe out the antidote with loving kindness, breathing in with compassion, taking, sending the antidote with loving kindness. Uh, Trungpa taught Ramdas this practice when we were there at Boulder mm. of kind of what you were just suggesting, but he, he in a very specific way, you breathe into the center of your heart and on the out breath, you breathe out in all directions into infinite spaciousness, letting go into space. Breathe into your heart, breathe out into spaciousness. It's a very powerful practice. I have a practice I call the two-breath meditation, which is the whole spiritual path in two breaths. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, The two breaths that go up, down, in, out. So on the first in-breath, you breathe up as if God were pulling you on top of your head, straightening out your spine, getting motivated. The first out breath, you drop down into your belly, become centered. Second in breath, you breathe into your heart. Second out breath, you breathe out into spaciousness, up, down, in, out. And after a while, you can let go of the first breath and just do be uh, because you're motivated and you're present. You're just breathing into the heart and then dissolving, breathing into the heart and dissolving. Mm. What, what makes it difficult to be in the heart is grief. Hmm. And uh, in fact, grief is the enemy of the heart in a certain way. Uh, Rumi has this great quote, grief is the garden of compassion. Grief is the garden of compassion. Grief are the negative emotions that arise in response to feeling separate. Compassion is the open heart feeling connected. So that one of the big chunks of spiritual practice is learning to transmute grief and separateness into connectedness and compassion. And can so can we connect with our own suffering? Can we connect to the suffering of all other beings? Un, until we connect with something, we can't really have compassion for it. Mm-hmm. 
I found something else around a breath that I thought I'd share. I don't know if you you know who uh, His Holiness the Dalai Lama's uh, translator for many years, Tupten Junpa, Jimpa. Yeah. Yeah, you know who he is, and you've seen him. He wrote this book on uh, Tsongkhapa, you know, the great uh, Buddhist uh, siddha, uh, philosopher uh, called the Buddha in the snow, land of the snows. Um, and I was just looking through different things, and, and they, they were talking, uh, he was explaining Tsongkhapa's advice around uh, uh, the... Uh, understanding of the meaning of bliss in the con- in the t- context of the union of bliss and emptiness and emptiness in buddhism everyone this is nothing to do with nihilistic emptiness this is uh uh bob thurman likes to call emptiness or or explain emptiness as the womb of bliss that's how he he talks about it um so um the the it's a the pervasive experience of bliss that arises through breath-based techniques, as presented in non-tantric sources, um, is what Tsongkhapa is talking about. Uh, the it, uh, it it is an arising through preventing the breath from leaving the body and holding it inside, which is taught as pranayama, didi yoga meditation. So this, by the way, I don't know, 1300s, we're talking about when Tsongkhapa was alive. Um, uh, but in both, in this case, meditators can attain a state that is characterized by bliss, clarity, and non-conceptuality. Uh, and then it goes on. You want to get something really, here's, this is arcane, as only they can be. But, the, he says, the problem is that neither, uh, this has not arisen from, quote-unquote, the melting of drops caused by the ignition of inner heat, tumo, right, inner heat, through the entry of the winds into the central channel triggered by penetrating the vital points of the channel centers in the body. This is all just right on, you know, chakra, I mean, it all came from India, I guess. Um, So here's what he says. Innate joy is the bliss spoken of with respect to uniting bliss and emptiness. And it initially arises from bringing the winds of the left and right channels into the central channel to ignite the tumo fire, which then causes the bodhicitta to melt. This bliss is also called objectless compassion uh-huh the punchline yeah <laughs> but i mean you know so this is getting very i mean the tibetans are fabulous i mean they really are in terms of the reality that they present in a way that's so compelling uh and uh, and they have done it experientially this isn't just uh mind stuff and but going it goes back to the importance of breath and uh what you just set out with um, that particular practice, I think everybody needs to take a look at that because it's something that uh, even in its most basic level, like um, I was told by my Chinese medicine doctor, for instance, before you meditate, take five minutes of long, deep out-breath and long, deep in-breath. 
he said, you can't imagine what just that will do if you do it a few times a day in terms of regular, you know, just balancing out your system and so on. So I didn't want to make a big deal out of it. But. So why do you suppose that the Maharaji never talked to us about any of this stuff? <laughs> and, and, and all he said, just love everybody and feed people. He said, yoga's been lost. I mean, nobody's pure enough to do yoga anymore. Don't worry about this stuff. Just, just yeah. love people. Just love me. It's all going to be fine. But he also <laughs> said, I've done everything for you. I leave you the mind. He said that. I leave you the mind. What, what do you think he meant by that, Brago? Uh, just w doing what we're doing right now, working this shit out, <laughs> okay? As <laughs> we're here, right? We have a lot of time on our hands. <laughs> We've got a lot of neurotic tendencies. So right. we're going through that. Didn't you? I mean, the feeling I got when I first met him was, oh, wow, okay. I'm done, finished. You know, there was a certain thing about being finished I guess finish for searching or anything like that. Now live out the karma, you know, karma is there and uh, we've been dealing with that. And I think that's what he meant. Deal with, the, I leave the mind to you. And you know, he left us uh, people to help us deal with them. And one most important people was uh, Casey Tuari, right? Who absolutely understood Western mind extraordinarily well better than any of our Indian mentors, I thought. And uh, that was the beginning of dealing with all of that. So I can't tell you how many times he would come to me and say, if you think you're, do my boy, if you think you're doing it, you are lost. <laughs> Stuff like that. So yeah, that, he was he fantastic. To deal with the mind, you know. Oh, boy. Um, you know, when I started the Dying Center, hmm. for the longest time, nobody came. I mean, people came and they got better and they left. We had a center in Santa Fe in the early 1980s, Ramdas, Stephen, and I, but I was running it. They weren't there particularly. And the idea was people could come, we'd take care of them free of charge and feed them and care for them and help them die consciously. And everybody came and got better than, and, got, and left. So I was in this kind of bizarre situation of hoping somebody would die to validate my career, right? But... <laughs> <laughs> and then and then Tawari came to New Mexico. He came to America and happened to be in Santa Fe for uh, Shiva Ratri. So he did he did a Shiva Ratri celebration for the satsang for everybody who wanted to come at the dying center. And after the Shiva Ratri said he said, People will people will come to your center now, Ramdev. And sure enough, that, that was that was the beginning of uh, all the people starting to come really? to die there. Wow. wow, that's amazing. Wow. You know, we're doing a film, Love Service, putting a film together with Krishnadas around him. Cause, uh, I didn't know that. Yeah, we have footage uh, from Kabir. This is a little inside ballpark, but we had one guy who was in India who, who did a bunch of interviews with this extraordinary being. The movie is going to be called Brilliant Disguise because nobody knew just how... I, I, until you got close to him, just really who he really was. And he wore a suit and jacket. You know, I mean, he was a school headmaster of a boys' school in the foothills of the Himalayas. And no, it was just a, an extraordinary uh, man. He was a very high yogi. Yeah, very high yogi, yeah. So um, so back to the uh, 
Tibetan Book of the Dead. <sighs> Do you know, I don't, I mean, again, somehow, um, this book talks about, or John Woodruff interprets, interprets uh, the idea, he really gets into the idea of what are we talking about when we're talking about that thing that incarnates to a body or into a, another plane. But Does he really call it a thing? He doesn't call You know what he calls it? He calls it the soul complex, right? The, and he's like a Buddhist. And he's saying that that is, you know, it's very obvious. And let me look and see if I can find just how he explains it. Uh, in life, the soul complex is never for two consecutive moments the same. But it is, like the body, in constant change. There is thus a series of successive, and in one sense, different states, which are in themselves but momentary. There is still a unifying bond in that each momentary state is a present transformation representative of all those which are past, as it will be the generator of all future transformations potentially involved in it. This process is not interrupted by death. Sounds great. Sounds good, right? I mean, it takes away from the, the on one side, the, the Buddhists, there's no soul and that there's no self that goes from incarnation to incarnation. On the other hand, there, this idea of a complex of elements that are changing that make up the kind of you, <laughs> mostly the you is a lot of projection, but behind all of that, and that, with its experience and, and creation of karma and so on, moves towards eventually the light. That makes that's a good, sensible thing, isn't it? It makes a lot of sense. I mean, to be honest with you, Raghu, even though, I mean, I assume you're bringing this stuff up because I run the, the Living Dying Project and I, I work with dying people, but I'm I'm not all that interested in what happens to people after they die. I'm 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 like this really practical scientific what practices help people be alive now and help them die well. And then and then what happens after that, whether there's a soul, whether there's incarnation. I mean the Buddhist said there are four things that can unhinge the mind. One of them is trying to understand reincarnation. Really? It will drive you crazy. Another thing is trying to understand karma. Right. And the other two is how it all began and how it will all end. So uh, it's a very comforting idea to think there's a soul complex or a soul or something that goes bounding from lifetime to lifetime. That's, you know, that, that Raga will never die or Ramde will Raghu, never die. That, they're they're going to die, but there's that complex behind what that uh, projection yeah, is. Yeah. I mean, I mean that's kind of what I believe, but I mean, it's, like in the moment, it, 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 I don't know how much it helps me be compassionate and loving and present. You know, I mean, it's like I'm kind of anti-intellectual. Mathematics almost killed me, right? <laughs> I almost drowned under the weight of mathematics on my shoulders, right? So I'm, I'm super practical. I mean, it's like, I mean, basically, 
when I was with Maharaji, I said, uh, I asked him for advice a few times. Like one time I said, you know, I'm having a really hard time meditating. Can you give me a meditation? And I thought he'd say, you know, think of your third eye and remember me. And he said, he said, just remember Mother Mary and you'll be able to meditate. I said, what? <laughs> he said, see a woman as the mother and you'll be able to meditate. Okay. And then I was coming back to America. I said, hey, I used to be a scientist and I'm not so sure I want to be a scientist anymore. What, what should I do when I go back to America? He said, just keep saying your mantra. You know, it's like, it was like the this, this simplest advice of just love women, love everybody, see it all as the mother, keep saying your mantra mm -hmm. and kind of trust that it's all going to happen, which is, so that's the bottom line for me. And, mm. you know, I've got, I've got shelves of books. You see a couple shelves there, but there's way more downstairs. And, I've read a lot of that stuff and it's like, now I read the sports page mostly. It's about <laughs> it. <laughs> oh God, I was counting on a, an elucidation of the Bardos for God's sake. And this is I taught I a get. workshop with, I taught a workshop with Bob Thurman a couple years ago at Menla on the Tibetan mm -hmm. book of the dying. So I, I bought his translation and it was just the, the channels and the winds and the lights and the things are going up and down. And I got about a, a quarter of the way into the book and said, this stuff is so complicated. I'm going to let Bob do the complicated. I'm going to do the simple, right? And we got together. We loved each other. It fit together. Uh, and he, I mean, he's, he's, a, he's a world's expert on that stuff. He's brilliant. Yeah. He's funny and he's a great guy. Yeah. I'm yeah. sure you, you've, he's been at the retreats in Maui and stuff. So uh, leave it to Bob. Yes. <laughs> it's like that movie. What about Bob? <laughs> I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I don't have more clever things to say about no, no, the winds I, and the channels. Uh, no, but, just, the, but, but to be really honest, I mean, yeah. yesterday I was up in Placerville two hours away with my son. He was just at his first prom. I had some wine. I drive a few hours. You know, I mean, it's like my my mind and body aren't pure enough to be doing the winds and all that stuff. It's like if I can just remember God and love God and be kind to people, then I'm, I've yeah. had a good day. Yeah. I, <laughs> I'm totally one billion percent with you, Ramdev. It's just so happened. I get, you know, I love Tupton Jinpa and I get these great books. Here's his book, by the way. And, uh -huh. uh, and I just happened to go through it because we were doing it. And yes, I, I guess I, I love my <laughs> Tibetan Book of the Dead. And uh, um, this just struck me, This um, these amazing beings that have lived, you know, so long ago who were so dedicated to getting uh, themselves straight and then anybody else they could help at the same time. So, uh, but the bottom line is, yeah, I, I don't... Uh, there's nothing but, but there is a practicality on being able to use different methodologies, like oh, yeah, using for sure. breath and and so yeah, on. Yeah, as yeah. You, you've already described. Why don't we? In fact, we'll get a completely away from this intellectualization that I've tried to, I've tried to draw you into I'm so <laughs> unsuccessfully. I might add, yeah, really. Yeah. <laughs> but I do love. I mean, I do love 17th Karmapa, even though we identified that we're not ready for that. We're identifying, we're not ready for anything. That's why Maharaji just said, look, love everyone, serve everyone, remember God. That's all you got to do. Ram Das wanted right. to know, wait a minute now, I got to raise my kundalini. 
what do you mean serve people? I need a practice. So <laughs> that's why we got that because we couldn't handle anything more than that. Uh, there are people that feel that Shinrazi is a, is an incarnation of Hanuman. Mm, yes. And that when I was in uh, uh, Tibet walking around Mount Kailash, uh, very near Kailash is Lake Manasarovar, which is the, yeah. the highest big lake in the world. And there are these caves right there. And it's local legend that Hanuman at one point had been living in those caves mm. up in high up in the mountains of Tibet. Yeah. So, I mean, Tibetan Buddhism, Hinduism, it's all, it's really all the same stuff. It gets culturally separated. And mm -hmm. somebody you know, told us like that, Sub, Sub X. Yeah. Yeah. Um, What's your dog's name? Maya. Is she here? Yeah, well, she her. she was she had her head over your shoulder a while back. Yeah, come here. She she was yeah. kind of hogging the camera up there when yeah, you weren't noticing. Yeah. Okay, what I want <laughs> though is aside from trying to show a nice picture of my dog, uh, look at you. Um, please, can you lead us in a uh, a breath meditation? It's Hanuman, by the way, son of the wind. So. Um, how about a little breath meditation? Okay. Just a few, couple, few minutes, that's all. Okay. Please begin by bringing your attention into your body. Feeling your clothing on your body. Movement of the breath. Breathing in, breathing out. And as you breathe in, imagine that your spine is straightening, that God is lifting you up from the top of your head. You're feeling motivation to be free, to be present. And as you breathe out, drop down into your lower belly, your heart down below the navel. Lower belly strong, firm as a mountain. And on the second end breath, breathe into your heart, taking in all the love, compassion, gratitude. And then as you breathe out, surrender into spaciousness in all directions, above, below, right, left, front, back. Once again, first in-breath being pulled up, motivation, first out-breath dropping down into the belly. Second in-breath, opening your heart, breathing directly into your chest as if there were nostrils, dying into love. On the second out-breath, surrendering into spaciousness, the womb of bliss, a heart that's so empty is full of love. One more time, out-breath, uh, in-breath, straightening the, the back, becoming motivated, dropping down into the belly on the out-breath. Breathing into the chest, breathing out into spaciousness. And then let go of the up and down, just breathing in and out, into the heart, out into spaciousness. The nature of the heart is spaciousness in the sense of beyond concept, beyond an eye who knows. The nature of the heart is connected 
the open heart is connected to self, to God, to all beings who are more pure than breath itself, more dear to you than breath itself. And then letting go of this, all this breathing into spaciousness, it's just beginning to notice your breath and particularly notice what happens at the very end of the exhalation. When the eye who is even breathing out disappears, nothing remains. And then there is rebirth with the in-breath, the end of the in-breath, spaciousness, the beginning of the out-breath, and paying that particular attention to the very end of the out-breath. The self-complex is revealed in the space between the out-breath and the in-breath, between the in-breath and the out-breath. It's there all the time, but it's seen most clearly in the beginning in these gaps. Can you begin to rest in self with a capital S, in presence? Not even someone to meditate, no one to remember God, dying into spaciousness. No effort needed other than when you get lost in mind, the slightest, slightest effort to come back to the surrender. And then beyond effort, seeing the nature of things, resting there. The breath breathing itself, the mind moving itself, the heart loving, no one meditating, nothing a distraction. The bell doesn't mean to stop, it means we're celebrating. <laughs> nothing to stop doing. Mm. Beautiful, thank you. It's just lovely. And I loved uh, your Hanuman stories were so great, Ramdev. Very great. Such blessings we've all had. Mm. Yeah, really. Really, really. Well, thank you, thank you for being here. Of course, uh, we're going to point to being able uh, enable people to be in touch with you in the show notes, which you're going to be here now network.com slash mind rolling. You can also go to be here now network.com slash healing at the edge. Healing Ramdev. Ramdev, right. You'll find it uh, some wonderful, not just wonderful guests, but some wonderful uh, talks as well. And do you have anything that you can want to announce at this moment? 
Well, I haven't been doing a lot. I, I, I'm doing my local stuff on Zoom. I haven't been traveling because of COVID. Of course, I am going to be the the cleanup hitter and the the, oh, the eight course. essential weekends there, and sometime in June, that's starting in a, in uh, a little more than a week from now. The mm-hmm. eight essential teachings of Ramdas, and I just like everybody to uh, remember Hanuman, even though you might not be hearing this podcast on Hanuman's birthday, which is the day we're recording it. But the essence of Hanuman is really selfless service. Uh, and even though I argued with the Karamapa, I, I deeply <laughs> respect what he was saying there, that in every moment where we're seeing everyone out there is more dear, our self submerges into love. Mm. It dissolves in love and Hanuman flows through us. So that's uh, all the winds flowing through and the colors and the channels and that stuff is fine. But uh, for me, it's just service and letting that uh all that inus dissolve in the surface mm-hmm. yeah ramdas said i always quote this he said in becoming nobody the film that we did in one of his talks uh it was actually in joshua tree and he said when is it when what i want enough what is <laughs> when is it what i need is enough already enough it's much more interesting to serve others he said something exactly like that so you can just start there just start there is uh, and you can end there too yeah you can end there too <laughs> oh boy thank you again my pleasure of course and uh, yeah again everybody be here now network.com you'll catch everybody that's part of the network and uh we'll see you next time Lots of love, Raghu, and it to everybody. Love to everybody.